Radio episode number 54. I am, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight is the winter solstice. Dun dun dun! Ooh, spooky, of course. Indeed. Hello, this is Chris, by the way, the other host. We also have uh, Chig. Hello, Chig. How are you doing? Evening, everybody. Hello, yeah. I... This isn't, isn't spooky, it's, it's about rebirth. It's when. Whoa! You know, yeah, but so it's also the, the balance. swings back around. It swings back around. I mean, they're, 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 you can consider the solstice as, a, as another day when, you know, the, the, the veil in some form is uh, uh, in places is rent apart. And, you know, obviously uh, the fae come along and perform their wild hunt, maybe. Um, so, yeah, keep your kids locked up because, you know, there's going to be some wretched fae creatures out there ready to steal them away. Or, you know just you know they're just like carol singers on your doorstep <laughs> but we know that uh you know jig you were just reading wraith and we know that certain days of the year you know particularly you know stolsis and you know equinox the shroud is weakened so you know maybe even keeping your kids locked up won't even help because these ghosts can just go through the walls and get to them they walk right on in yeah mm-hmm. you're not safe anywhere Right, anyway, <laughs> so how's everyone been? Um, good, reading, having read Guildhalls, which is, we'll say more about later, um, eagerly waiting, eagerly wanting to sit down for the rest of the evening and um, look at, uh, start looking at Blood and Smoke, um, which we'll say a little bit about later, and um, yeah, I think things are good, um, Obviously, I've, I'm writing research paper right now for work, so um, lots of crazy science stuff. Really, you, I, I should be working for the technocracy at the end of the day. I'm, I'm obviously a member of Iteration X, um, which is really sad. Yeah, totally. Uh, oh, and obviously, uh, I've been running lots of... Um, we've finished um, for Christmas uh, Iron Kingdoms right now. Uh, one of our players has left. He's moving country, so we were able to write his character out in kind of a nice way. His um, because his character's a priest, and in the events of the last story, uh, there was kind of like a, an explosion and it killed lots of um, uh, Laelie's nobles. So hmm. and it killed the local priest. So his priest character has essentially retired from the group and will be remaining in that uh, place in Lael as the local priest which happens to also be the area where one of the other characters comes from because uh, Sam's character is this uh, noble-turned-witch-hunting-bounty-hunter. You know, and this is all a story based around um, her character's family and one, of the char- and one of the family members having a wedding and, you know, Kadoran's getting involved. So it's, it was kind of a, a nice farewell to that character that they get to retire where one of the other characters comes from. So, yeah. And of course, after Christmas, yeah, after Christmas we'll be um, we'll be sorting things out. Hopefully, have a new player added to the group. We'll see, and uh, carrying on with the rest of Witchfire. So um, I've done the rest of the conversions for that, and it was fairly easy. Um, 
yeah, that's all pretty good, roleplay-wise and gaming-wise. Totally sweet. Uh, I skipped Shoutaround last night so I could, you know, prepare for this episode. So that's that's good, right? Yes, Darker Days is, is better than 4th Edition Shadowrun. 5th uh, Edition now. <laughs> we actually converted. Darker Days is better than 5th Edition Shadowrun. Yes, it is. Of course but it is. 5th Edition Shadowrun is pretty good as well. And uh, how about you, Chig? What's been going down? Oh, you know, the the holidays here in the States have made it difficult to get together, but uh, uh, one of my uh, gaming group guys is running a Numenera game tonight, so we'll give that a shot. Whoa, uh, you'll have oh. to uh, give us a review of that next time uh, we have an episode. I think I can do that. Yeah, because it's quite um, it's uh, it's kind of casting fantasy in a far future science fiction uh, setting. So in that way, it's kind of when I looked at it, it, it seemed I've not obviously read anything more than the original Kickstarter and some of the stuff that came out. It read kind of very similar to uh, being based off kind of concepts from say Gene Wolfe's uh, oh damn which series uh, Book the of the New Sun. Sun. Yeah, Book of the New Sun and Earth of the New Sun and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to um, hear about your gaming experience with that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I will let everybody so, know how it goes. Yeah, with that introduction, I think it's time for World of Darkness News. <laughs> So, Demon the Descent had a Kickstarter. It was wildly successful. Uh, just 50 backers shy of Werewolf 20th, so a lot of people were really interested in this. And uh, I think that, you know, releasing 90% of the rulebook during the Kickstarter for people to check out was definitely beneficial. So, uh, I think uh, also, of course, the two developers being on Darker Days Radio was a pretty big uh, boost to uh, their interest as well. So, yeah, definitely good oh, stuff. Oh, definitely. Oh yes, and yeah, I'm having ninety percent of the book available to read, and it just—I think that really boosted the desire to have that book as a hard copy. Um, so, and of course, a lot of stuff's come out of that. There's a hell of a lot of stretch goals they hit, um, like uh, they're doing an anthology. So, in the same way as uh, Strix Chronicles and Gold Machine Chronicles anthology. Um, so with that though they're doing it slightly different so it's kind of like is it it's an anthology but they're seeds so it's kind of like you get a story but you also get rules to to reuse the the concepts and the things that appear in those stories in your game and i think that's a really good concept because i think that that makes kind of just reading you know fluff which people can quite often skip in world of darkness books kind of a more more interesting to read because you're suddenly like, yeah, that's actually something I can put in my game and I've got rules for it. Um, and that's something I'm looking, I'm thinking about whether we should be doing more of for um, Forgotten Lore is doing, you know, short stories mm -hmm. and adding rules around it. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a good concept. And another cool thing that came out of that is, of course, the God Machine Chronicles condition cards, which is a neat idea that Chris mentioned last episode. And, uh, well, now we've got it. So awesome. Yep. That's really, really good. I will have to look in the new year. I'm mostly, um, yeah, I'm mostly sort out 
getting a uh, a deck uh, printed and delivered because it will be wicked. Yep. And uh, Chig, the last couple of days we've had some pretty cool stuff coming out for Werewolf. So uh, what did we get? I have actually received and has been shipped to all backers the Werewolf 20 Special Edition, as well as if you ordered it, at, if you backed both, the Hunters Hunted 20th Edition. Nice. Solid. They, so it is finally January and also May. Yes. <laughs> and yes, they, they, they are gorgeous, gorgeous books. I have them right here with me. It was worth the wait and all the complaining I did. Excellent. <laughs> and it's also Isn't... pretty much just Christmas for Werewolf because we got Rights of Renown, the anthology book, and also Rage Across the World on PDF just came out. So a lot of stuff coming out for Werewolf the Apocalypse. Ooh. Also coming up soon because we had uh, the reviewer voucher turn up in my email, so it's, it's not long now. Is the cookbook? That's yes. not far yeah, off. Yeah, it now. was just uh, approved by CCP, so it's going to be coming out pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, Stu Wilson's been pretty busy. I think they've all been pretty busy at Onyx yeah. Path. Um, cool. Um, is there anything else, Old World of Darkness, that was out? I missed. Not particularly. I mean, the only thing to mention, of course, regarding the uh, the CWAD is that uh, it seems as though February 2014 is when they expect the Mage 20th anniversary Kickstarter to go live. So, uh, you know, a little upset that it's not coming out in 2013, which would have been the actual 20th anniversary. And, uh, of course, I blame Ian Watson because he assured me when he was on the show, he assured <laughs> me it was going to be out in 2013. So, yeah, I don't know. It's only two months late. That's not that bad. Yeah. I think it was supposed to be out in the summer, for, or for the Kickstarter, it was supposed to be going on in the summer. But anyway. Even if it's a few months late, actually ha having the Kickstarter start, I think now they've done so many Kickstarters, I would like to think that you, know, you won't have to wait as long for the actual physical copies to finally arrive. Like, you know, they've... We've had Mummy turn up, we've had, you know, there's been Vampire 20th, we've had Werewolf 20th, we've had Hunters Hunted, uh, Hunted 20th, so hopefully they've had plenty of practice now to that these, um, the things that kind of slow down that, that chain of events is really reduced to random shit that happens and gets in the way. Yeah, it's definitely true. I don't think that Rich Thomas is sitting up in his Blackstone no. Tower cackling madly that, you know, he's going to make werewolf 20th come out a year late or something no 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 and I, I i complained a lot about it but it was all in in good fun i had i had utter faith that they would get it to me and it would be worth the wait but then again you never know maybe rich thomas is sitting in a black tower cackling madly <laughs> i, I have <laughs> never seen rich thomas and a black tower in the same room so it's possible hmm. he pretty much just sits in front of a bookshelf filled with well, World of Darkness books and clipping out toy soldiers, I think, while he's, if he's ever doing that, well, if he's ever Skyping people, that's what he did last time he was on Skype to us, so, um, yeah, or on yeah. Google Hangouts. <laughs> yeah, so, nice. um, and of course, there is another wonderful book that came out, what, two days ago? Three days ago? I lost track. No, not too long. Not too long. We ha now have Blood and Smoke the Strix Chronicles out and uh, Mike you've actually you've actually looked at it you've 
giving it a, a quick look over. Um, very, very brief. Yes. I it would be totally unfair to start talking about it on this show because I think while there's plenty of reviews heading out for it, I think it'd be nicer to really digest where Vampire the Requiem has moved to how it's evolved and how it's pushed itself away from Masquerade even further so that it really is just even more of a different game in than Requiem originally was. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what's in there. I'm uh, kind of excited to maybe use the Strix Murder Chronicle to run Vampire the Masquerade. You know, use a new rule set. Because I think yeah. it's just going to give you this more accurate game to uh, what the fiction of Vampire you know, shows us compared to what the actual rules and actual gameplay sometimes uh, results in. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing you say about that because obviously there's um, there's been jokey, uh, jokey slash serious responses to Blood and Smoke uh, from the LARP community because, of course, you know, these these things really don't immediately translate into LARP play and so stuff appears broken and so forth but yeah i'm gonna start reading that book over christmas it's gonna be great definitely and you know what because it's the christmas season and we're such nice guys and we have a whole lot of money sitting there in our little uh little account we're gonna give away a free copy a free physical copy of blood and smoke the strix murder chronicles Mm-hmm. indeed so how are listeners going to be able to get a copy? Well, here's what we want you to do. We want you to send an email over to darkerdaysradio at gmail.com uh, answering basically what is the favorite clan, whether it be from Vampire the Masquerade, Vampire the Dark Ages, or uh, Vampire the Requiem for myself, Chris, and Chig. So, you know, you don't have to actually get it right. Just, like, take a stab at it. Maybe make it funny. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm not a follower of set, but uh, maybe you think I am. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen you tempt a lot of people. Well, you know, I sent you some pretty crazy text messages yesterday. It's true. <laughs> Sorry, I just logged into our drive through RPG to actually just see how much we've got sitting there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's going to be really cool to give away. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Good. So I think with that... Are we all done with the news? Yeah. I believe so. <laughs> all right. So, let's move on over to the classic World of Darkness. Classic World of Darkness. Long ago, a game came out. A game called Vampire the Masquerade. And it was a lot of stuff about vampires. But in there, there's a couple of gems as well that have echoed throughout the world of darkness. Uh, and one thing is true faith, which is really the, the first line of defense that was offered to moral characters in the world of darkness. And in addition to that, we also had the Inquisition, the Society of Leopold, who really are the primary mortal faction that antagonizes the uh, kindred themselves. Chig, why don't we just kind of take a look and discuss how true faith and the Inquisition have evolved over the years and uh, get a good feel for, you know, how everything started and how it can be used in your games and look at inspiration from different editions. Think it's a good plan? Sounds great to me. Excellent. So, yeah, let's kind of talk about True Faith. Uh, it's, it's got this sort of air of 
uh, mystery to it, in that the, the world of darkness, in many ways, is, is really unclear about it. You know, is it actually faith in, you know, a higher being that causes this and is, like, granted from the heavens above? Or is it really just a psychic noumena of some sort? And definitely uh, Vampire First Edition is not clear about it at all. True Faith is introduced in the Inquisition section or segment of the book, and it just gets about two or three paragraphs at most with some pretty vague rules. So... They don't want to spill their beans too early. Oh, definitely not. So the way it worked originally was that uh, true faith was measured on a scale of 1 to 10. And essentially what would happen is when a vampire character would attempt to approach someone who had true faith and they were bearing a holy symbol, uh, they would need to roll their willpower against the difficulty of the uh, opponent's faith rating. Now, uh, if they botched, it would cause a uh, level of health damage. Or, or cause them to frenzy and flee. And uh, if they had a number of successes, that would, well, give them a number of steps forward equal to the number of successes. So it's not too powerful uh, in and of itself. And since most of these, uh, you know, inquisitors or other individuals only had faith ratings of four, five, something like that, uh, that difficulty level was not too extreme. That said... White Wolf quickly came out with a number of other books, uh, including Hunter's Hunted and uh, The Inquisition as part of Year of the Ally, or sorry, Year of the Hunter. And uh, these kind of expanded upon True Faith, and it started to get pretty ridiculous pretty quick. So just to take a look at how it worked in Hunter's Hunted, it was the same basic rules, but now since you're playing as one of the, uh, one of the hunters, you would actually roll a number of dice equal to your True Faith, which is still rated between 1 and 10. Uh, and you did that against the undead vampire's, you know, willpower. That itself makes a lot of sense. But now they include a caveat that uh, if you had true faith of six or higher, you got these additional kind of Numina-like abilities, Numina being the hedge magic of the world of darkness. Uh, just to quickly kind of run through these, uh, if you had true faith of six, you could, you know, cleanse evil in a room... Uh, reduce the difficulty of reaction checks, so if you're being ambushed or something like that. Uh, and also, it could give you an extra willpower point for a scene. If you had True Faith of 7, you would have... Uh, you could guilt riddle an undead or um, evil opponent, uh, causing them to uh, lose dice in their pools mechanically, but also just kind of uh, become very introspective and really just distract them. You also get an additional three dice for, you know, ambush and kind of reaction checks. And you can also get an extra willpower point for a scene for both you and all of your allies. So a lot of willpower points just being thrown around there. Uh, at level eight, you could, this is crazy, by the way, change the nature archetype, you know, nature and demeter, temporarily or permanently in uh, someone that you're targeting. <laughs> so, you know, maybe you can make that vampire into a bit of a goody two-shoes, but maybe if you have a really bad day, you might turn someone into an evil SOB. And if they're evil, then you can go ahead and use the uh, level 6 power and uh, smack them around. Yep, that's right. Uh, the other thing is, this is crazy, you could also reduce the uh, vampire's discipline levels. So, oh, you have Auspex 3, now you only have Auspex 1. <laughs> Pretty nuts. 
so that's that's level eight level nine you could perform an exorcism uh you can prevent any aggressive actions in in the room you're in with five plus successes targeting a victim of sorts who has humanity two or less uh you can cause them to either commit suicide or submit to just kind of meekly being staked or something like that uh that of course has its own moral implications which i think may affect someone with you know high humanity and true faith uh definitely not a uh ability you're going to see used too often do you agree well i don't know it depends on the being if you're if you're you know facing down against just a regular newly turned vampire who just hasn't had a very good go of it sure maybe but i mean this is for vampires with a humanity of two or less so you know based it's at, at this point in the game line it's, it's targeting the sabat who are mm. at this point just horrible horrible monsters so yep that's quite true now at uh true faith 10 and we're talking when you when you say true faith 10 you're basically looking at you know the equivalent of you know potence 10 or something like that uh with enough preparation the uh being with true faith can ignore 10 dice per round of damage uh they can <laughs> cleanse someone of the embrace at difficulty 10 so just oh yeah you're not a vampire anymore that's cool you're good and you can also hmm. call on divine minions. I'm assuming they mean angels. Uh, definitely really ridiculous and uh, not something I'd ever want to see in a game. Really, all of these That's true like, faith levels I would not want to see in a game. <laughs> I mean, level 10 truth, true faith. You're basically Jesus or Muhammad or Moses, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, yeah. Uh, true faith itself is extremely rare. But uh, when you look at these you know, six plus powers, these are one in a billion or something like that. No mortal is going to live long enough or be sane enough to, to achieve that out over any time. I mean, you, you're essentially... I mean, it's interesting to have those there, but, I mean, it's one of these things like, you know, do you think having those available in the game is is, is a good thing, but is it too much of a, an excuse for players to suddenly play things which thematically in your story don't make sense or just ridiculous yeah no it's definitely a good point i don't think that white wolf in 1992 really had good uh grasp <laughs> on the themes of their games so yeah there's a lot of stuff in there that's that's always a little funky and interesting um and and yep. like all the other games true faith has been revised indeed <laughs> but, but the, no no, no chig there's one last thing i gotta mention about uh, true faith okay okay sorry go at ahead, this point ahead. in the game you can use true faith as willpower points after willpower is depleted <laughs> so it's just wow. like oh yeah it's also willpower stat so pretty ridiculous stuff uh but of course yes uh true faith has been further revised as we go down the line and gets pretty interesting in the inquisition source book so chig what do we got there well true faith in the inquisition the inquisition is the uh the church sponsored group of hunters so clearly true faith is going to be their bread and butter uh, not everybody in the Inquisition has true faith, of course, but those who do know how to use it. Inquisitors with true faith have the ability to have all the abilities you've already mentioned. They can hold off uh, the undead. They can bring werewolves out of frenzy. They can do all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, they can lay on lay on hands. They can uh, just do ridiculous, ridiculous amounts of stuff. It's it's really the most powerful mortal magic in the game at this point. 
they can use it against against vampires, against werewolves. They can use it as uh, counter magic to uh, to uh, the awakened mages. They can Oof. use it to bind wraiths. They can uh, kick wraiths who are possessing people out of the bodies. And although there is not yet a, a demon game line, they can totally use their powers against demons just as they can against vampires. That's pretty incredible. Mm. <laughs> it's fairly ridiculous. It is, it is. Uh, Chick, do you want to comment on, like, Theurgy at all or anything like that? Uh, theurgy is another form of Numina. Um, just like any other form of Numina, you roll uh, your attribute plus an ability. Uh, they have their own special uh, names for things. Uh, the Via Mendicamenti. Mendicamenti is basically lay on hands. It uh, allows you to cure wounds, which if you're out as a normal mortal fighting vampires and werewolves, you're probably going to need at some point. They have the Via Ignis, which is uh, pyromancy. And they have the Via Geniorium, which is... Um, uh, what's what I'm looking for here? Uh, summoning and binding of uh, spirits and demons and other fun stuff like that. Oh, and mm. uh, uh, Vio Necromantiae, which is uh, the same thing as Vio Geniorium against wraiths and maybe vampires if, you're, if your uh, storyteller is being nice. Nice, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in there. A lot, of, a lot of cool powers for the uh, Inquisition to use. Um, but additionally, the rules have been further revised uh, in Hunters Hunted 2, which just came out. And now True Faith is a similar concept, really, to the other Numina, uh, you know, Hedge Magic. And not only does True Faith now protect against um, different physical advances of the undead, but, you know, it also resists different disciplines, uh, Numina of, of Hedge Magicians, and that sort of thing, uh, and other powers. And to uh, kind of just go through different powers, um, of course, one thing to bring up is that now that when you get a point of true faith, you also get an extra willpower. So now I guess your limit could go up to 15 willpower points if you use true faith in the current system. I'll have to check about that. Yeah, because that. the current system limits true faith to, uh, to a five-point path. Right, but you can have up to 10 so, willpower. So there's no, there's, no more, there's no more true faith 10, so... Right, right, right. But you can have 10 points of willpower, and then for each point of true faith, you get an extra willpower point. So I'm thinking you can get up to 15, unless there's a hard limit of 10 somewhere in the uh, books that I'm not familiar with. I didn't see it. So I think I think it stacks, so I think it's 15. Wow. <laughs> Pretty ridiculous. Yeah. And of course, uh, Chris, just to review, in Classic World of Darkness, spending a willpower point is an automatic success, not plus yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty Having... nice. Having yeah, and you can spend, you could spend more than one willpower point on a roll, if I remember right. I can't remember no, actually. No, no okay. No. So it, it's useful for landing that hit that you definitely need. Which you know, when you're an inquisitor, it's pretty good if what you're trying to land a hit with is say a flaming log on a vampire or something that is on fire, and you want to light them up. Yeah, that's pretty decent. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the new powers are kind of similar to the old ones. Uh, of course, the first dot is Repel Undead. Um, and if you touch a vampire with a holy symbol or something, you do one point of aggravated damage. So that's actually pretty nasty, but you have to get very close to be able to use it. Uh, two dots is Detecting Vampires. Pretty simple stuff. Uh, three dots, 
You're immune to chemistry, obfuscate, and mind-altering disciplines. Fuck. Pretty good. <laughs> At four points, you cannot be ghouled, and you're unaffected by the presence discipline. Pretty good hmm. stuff. At five dots, here's the great one. If you start preaching or saying prayers, you can actually subject vampires to Roshrek, causing them to, <laughs> you know, flee and run away. Definitely good stuff. I also want to bring up that when you look at these powers for the new updated version from Hunter's Hunted 2, uh, the first through fourth dots are actually a lot like the second site in Hunter the Reckoning, which is kind of an interesting thing to bring up. Uh, the second site, of course, uh, helps you to see monsters and that sort of thing, and mm -hmm. also uh, prevents mind-altering disciplines from being used on one of the imbued, and also they cannot be ghouled or turned into vampires themselves. They just well, cough up the blood, or in the case of the embrace, they just die. And it's actually interesting the way they have it set up now as, you know, one through five dots. It's actually very analogous to the new world of darkness and the merit system they have. And mm. as we were looking at uh, before the show, uh, Chris and I were scrambling through a bunch of books to try to see if there actually was an equivalent to true faith in yeah. the new world of darkness. And it doesn't seem like there is, at least not from the couple books we checked, you know, Second Sight, Innocence. It doesn't exist as a merit what you have more is the fact that um especially in blood and smoke so i did a quick search in that and then i realized that blood and smoke uh for vamp which is the new book for vampire the requiem um has effects for uh, that things you know things true faith symbols of faith can affect vampires because remember that vampires as they gain in uh blood potency and so forth uh Mm -hmm. And they have bad things happen to them. Gain banes. Now banes. So that so certain things you know are a bane to you, or uh, or um, you've got. Uh, and so it's kind of in that way similar to what you have in Changeling: The Lost. So as you increase in your weird, you again gain these banes. So you know, like you 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 can't stand the shadow of a cross falling on you. Or if you hear the words of, uh, from a priest, you must flee. Or, you, you know, obviously, uh, you're hurt by the touch of symbols of faith. So the difference in that is, obviously, that the harm that occurs to these, to these supernatural creatures is more linked with their own, with their own internal view of their their own internal kind of like corruption of their soul rather than a given person's faith indeed yeah so it is it is quite a bit different um but it's very interesting to look at the new world darkness and you don't see anything you know equivalent to true faith where really the core mechanic is that you just keep a vampire or some sort of undead creature away from you um by brandishing a holy symbol there's no um, um, warding effect well, like that and, and other psychic merits that I've seen in the New World of Darkness. So that's just why it's interesting. If you keep going through the rest, I'll just do a quick search of, of course, uh, my Hunter the Vigil PDF, because I was thinking, hold on a minute, there must be something in there, or in Night Stalkers. So, you know, you carry on, and we'll get back to this. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Stick a pin in it. So, yeah. Chig, uh, True Faith, of course, changes in a lot of ways when you go to other game lines outside of Vampire. So how does it kind of work in, in Wraith? It's not exactly true faith, is it? Well, Wraith, um, 
unless I'm mistaken, came out before the hunters hunted, so it doesn't really have a lot to do with with the hunters. Um, however, in Wraith, there are ways to ward an area against uh, ghosts coming in, and there are uh, there's the ability of forbiddance, which is uh, exorcism basically. And wards and forbiddance are both willpower rolls, and as we've already stated, faith increases your willpower and makes those rolls easier since you have more dice. So, if you have faith, you can call upon your faith to ward against wraiths and uh, forbid them from uh, possessing somebody. That's really yeah. the only thing in uh, the wraith game line, though. Yeah, at least from what we've seen just from uh, going through a couple of the core books. Uh, but it also states in there that, really, the person that's performing this has to have faith in what they're doing. Like, they have to actually believe that this is going to work, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So if you are doing an exorcism and you have true faith, you truly believe that God is on your side. Absolutely. And it's also interesting that, you know, when we go and look at some other game lines, like, for example, Kindred of the East, uh, we see that true faith does appear, but it's slightly different. So uh, in, in Kindred of the East, true faith covers, you know, Taoism, Buddhism, Shinto, and uh, Tongak. And, you know, these these monks and shamans don't typically actually have holy symbols. So uh, they actually kind of just write that out of the rules. It's not required. It just has to be them praying or really focusing on the uh, evil spirit at hand. And the mechanics now, of course, are uh, that they roll their faith against a difficulty of the uh, Quajin's Poe stat. Um, and on three plus successes, that just means that the evil spirit in front of them, you know, feels shameful and, and runs away. They feel bad about themselves and the things that they have done. Yeah, kind of. And uh, powerful holy men can uh, seal a, a sight against evil, which requires a Poe roll to enter. So it kind of follows some basic trends in uh, Eastern mythology. Uh, the Quajin themselves, by the way, cannot have true faith. Uh, they know that their place in the Dharmic cycle does not allow them to uh, really become one with the heavens itself. But it's also important to note that vampires can have true faith, can't they? The kindred themselves, uh, there's a few canonical instances. Uh, we have, of course, Anatole, the uh, mad prophet. He's the Malkavian uh, signature character. And also, Louis Ambrose Mansada, the uh, archbishop of... Aragon. There we go. He's uh, Lucita's sire, and he himself has True Faith 3, according to Children of the Night, the source book. Yeah, so even even though he isn't, he is an inhumane monster, he totally still believes that uh, God is on his side and what he is doing is in the right. Right, so that's where you kind of get to this uh, you know, interesting dichotomy of how True Faith is represented, where, you know, is it really just a psychic effect where this person believes so strongly in, in some faith or higher power that because of that, they can get these abilities or does it come from something above some sort of heavenly host? Now, if you take a look at the, uh, what I like to think is the real hunters hunted Two, which is hunter the reckonings first contact. Uh, there's actually some interesting discussion of how the imbued in hunter the reckoning interact with the Inquisition themselves. So, you know, when a hunter, when one of the imbued is using uh, the second sight, when they're looking at someone that's using true faith or, um, or some forms of thurgy, but not all of them, uh, it actually appears that they have this sort of nimbus, that kind of halo around their head. And they seem like they're a holy figure. 
which is uh, definitely very interesting. But they don't show up as wrong. Um, the second site will not be triggered, uh, you know, actively if someone's using true faith near a hunter. It's only if they're, you know, themselves looking around for some reason that they notice this. Mm. However, some forms of thergy, uh, particularly the via genorum and the via necromentia, um, the ones dealing with binding and repelling spirits and ghosts, uh, those will trigger the site and they'll show up as wrong uh, because they really are just hedge magic that the uh, hunters themselves will see and notice that it's something that's abnormal. It should not exist. So it's kind of interesting to see that when the imbued are interacting with the Inquisition, they're going to see a lot of them as being these, these strange instances of, of true faith, um, which are not wrong at all. But then others in the organization will appear to be wrong. And some might have true faith and thergy. So then what's going on there? How are they going to uh, react to this person that seems so, so righteous and yet is doing these, these dark acts? That makes sense in the, uh, the context of the imbued, because unless I'm mistaken, and I may well be since I was not a big hunter, the reckoning player, uh, unless I'm mistaken, it was eventually revealed that, yep, they were totally imbued by for really real angels of God. And if you have true faith in the higher power that they were imbued by, then, yeah, they're not going to be pointed in your direction to come smack around. Uh, yeah, spoiler alert, Chig. Jeez, you just revealed the big mystery of the game line. I know, I know. It's been yeah. it's been twenty years or so, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's true. Uh, that was revealed in, I believe, the Storyteller's Handbook. And honestly, it was probably one of the worst ideas of the game line. Um, yeah, it really it's... should have just remained a mystery, kind of like the uh, the mists in Ravenloft, the dark powers. We don't know what those are, and it was always stipulated that Wizards of the Coast, or sorry, uh, TSR, would never reveal what the uh, what the dark powers were. And it really should have been the same thing for Hunt of the Reckoning, that the messengers would never be revealed. Because there's a lot of very interesting discussion of, you know, what these really are. Are we actually crazy? You know, are these angels? Are these, In you know... In character, it made for a great mystery. Yeah, it does. And, yeah. I think that they uh, kind of jumped the shark when they revealed, nope, it's just angels. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, just, just angels. Just angels. Yeah, there's something about when you reveal, oh, it's angels. I mean, it's that kind of absolute answer. I mean, in in some respects, that was kind of, uh, you know, when you look at like Demon the Fallen, that's kind of also the problem with that is it gives you such an absolute answer, which then if you're kind of playing where you like to use the entire world of darkness as, uh, you know, elements from it in your games, it kind of makes it a bit weird and hokum how you have you know true faith and angels and, and demons yeah but then you've got like you know mages and and you know the uh yeah the, the um i can't even think of the uh the name of them but you know the uh left whatever the left-handed path was at the time nefandi nefandi there we go yeah yeah um hmm. yeah really you have to be careful with uh when you look at like a novel or a tv show a lot of times they have that terrible secret of space, that crazy mystery that's going to be revealed by the end of the show. And you're like, whoa, that's so intense. And it's so awesome when that's revealed for you as a viewer. But in a role-playing game, I think it's a lot better to keep that mystery open so that, you know, for example, with the messengers, we don't know what they are. It might be revealed in your game, and then your players are going to be like, whoa, that's awesome. But then when you go back and you run a different chronicle, you might be able to change it. You might be able to explore something else. 
or have some different assumptions with it. And that's also really cool when then, you know, people get together and they talk about, let's say, their Hunt of the Reckoning game. And they say, like, hey, so when we were playing, we found that the messengers, they were space aliens. And then <laughs> they're like, whoa, that's so cool. When we were playing, it was the God Machine. And they'll be like, whoa, yeah. crossover, man. Yeah. So, yes, uh, crossover is, of course, always very challenging in the world of darkness. But two aspects that are quite clearly intertwined, and beautifully so, are the Inquisition and true faith. So, Chig, why don't we talk about the Society of Leopold itself? Okay. Uh, the Society of Leopold began in the 13th century to uh, root out the Cathar heresy. Um, it is. Uh, it was begun by the eponymous Leopold, who was a, uh, I believe he was a Benedictine monk or priest. Uh, he was sent out to uh, root out heretics, and hey, turns out those are some vampires. Uh, he gathered a group of people uh, who believed the same way he did, went up there, and uh, did his job. Uh, when the church learned of the existence of vampires and werewolves and ghosts and other things that went bump in the night, uh, they thought it'd be a great idea to have a group that would uh, protect humanity from them. And thus, based on the Testament of Leopold, uh, which is really his notes and uh, hunting journal and uh, diary all combined, uh, was born the Inquisition. It uh, exists through the modern nights to hunt primarily vampires, but also mages, mummies, ghosts, changelings, demons, race, anything else that uh, isn't really human and preys upon humans, uh, but primarily vampires. Freaks in general, then. <laughs> Freaks in general, yes. Good on them. Um, in, in the modern nights, it is uh, led by Ingrid Bauer, uh, and this is new as of uh, the Hunters Hunted 20th edition. Uh, in the Inquisition source book itself, she was a uh, an up-and-comer, but nobody really liked her uh, because of her uh, heavy-handed methods. Um, it says in uh, the Inquisition that she was a very successful Inquisitor. Uh, over her, the course of her career, she staked 15 individuals, 14 of whom proved to be vampires. Nice. So she is a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a nice little touch. And she's now in charge of the organization. Uh, the organization itself is uh, split into four main groups and a whole lot of little subsects. Uh, the four main groups are the condottieri, which is the uh, internal uh, protection and security group. Uh, if you have a group of uh, inquisitors, you don't want their home to be invaded by vampires while they're all out hunting vampires. So it falls to the condottieri to uh, guard the guardsmen. There is the Gladius D, the Sword of God, which is a uh, kind of a knighthood within the order. Uh, they are the super badasses of the Inquisition. Uh, they have never had a mission that uh, they undertook that was not successful. There is the Office of the Censor, which is the group who... Uh, they are the watchers of the watchmen, basically. They uh, look through the Inquisition itself and uh, wrote out any heresy, any groups who are not doing as they should, anybody who is, you know, harboring witches or whatever, because the uh, woman currently in charge, the aforementioned uh, Ingrid Bauer, is uh, not a big fan of uh, the other Newman, of the theurgists. 
and finally, there is the Order of St. Joan, which is a group of nuns, and uh, entirely female, of course, since they are nuns. And uh, they all uh, possess the uh, power of foresight. So, because, as mentioned previously, Ingrid Bauer is not a fan of theurgists, there's a little bit of uh, headbutting between the two groups. And, uh, yes, they are one of the largest and most well-funded and uh, well-armed groups of hunters in the modern nights. Uh, another small faction to bring up, which is very interesting, uh, is the Sons of uh, Tellurian. And these guys are actually mentioned in the antagonist section of Wraith the Oblivion. And, uh, of course, are talked about in some small detail in uh, the Inquisition. And they're really interesting. Uh, and, Chris, you love these guys for Geist of Years because... Okay. You know, you look at the Inquisition, and they're crazy extremists, right? Mm-hmm. And then you look at the Sons of Tellurian, and they're the batshit crazy extremists. <laughs> so these guys, of course, um, frequently challenge the uh, ghosts and wraiths of the uh, classic world of darkness. And they've, okay. uh, you know, they find these uh, small individuals and really convert them into being... Uh, these 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 crazed people that really just need to hunt the the dead the uh, the ghosts and really remove them they they really just have this single minded uh, aggression against them so much so that they actually have some individuals that volunteer to be almost sacrificed into becoming wraiths themselves oh, and then wow. wandering the countryside just slay or wandering the shadowlands I should say just slaying different circles of wraiths. Uh, which itself could be a great way to cause havoc in the underworld of the uh, new world of darkness. That is, yeah, that is quite interesting. Um, that would definitely fit in with a, um, maybe an excellent group to transplant straight into a, as a conspiracy for uh, Hunt of the Vigil. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I just did my little bit of research on, uh, looking at, you know, True Faith and everything uh, for New World of Darkness. And obviously, in Hunt of the Vigil, there is the Malleus uh, Malficanum, which is obviously a hunting, hunter's group which has its roots uh, in Catholicism. And of course, they have a range of uh, abilities uh, that they can use. Uh, it, generally, they will come under the term endowments. And this, these ones are called benedictions. And so these are all a class of abilities which do various things. So they're more like rituals and they they seem to take you know either they'll be reflexive or you know they take some time to perform mm-hmm. and uh again like you know in general for all of them there are modifiers to the situation which are based on you know is your morality too low then you're going to get a penalty to the role uh does your ritual incorporate uh overt signs of faith if it doesn't it's going to fail or you're going to get you know less dice to pull uh are you an ordained priest monk or nun so obviously that's representative that you actually have true faith so other characters could perform these but you're gonna get it's gonna be easier if you're a priest or some form uh if you have high morality obviously you're gonna be better at doing it my cat's going mental by the way um (laughs) um and of course, if you if you incorporate things like ritual sacraments and so forth, or um, you're performing on a feast, on a, a saint's day that is that is uh, that is appropriate to the benediction. So, so in hmm. these, there are very specific modifiers um, 
relating to both your morality, your profession, and thus knowledge of what you're doing or, or, or representative of your faith, or, you know, you're, you're so committed to your faith that you're even ensuring that you've planned ahead and you're going to perform this miracle on the correct saint's day, um, which is quite interesting. I think maybe from this, there's, you know, obviously um, inspiration that you can pull back into, um, into for like classic world of darkness inquisitors. Like, you know, I'm sure many of these benedictions would make kind of interesting kind of, uh, you know, I say rituals, but, you know, like, um, you know, actual powers that a group of inquisitors could perform together before they go off hunting the creatures of the night. Totally good stuff. Yeah. I so, so yeah, that's in Hunter, that's in uh Hunter the Vigil. Yeah. So, you know, don't ignore it. Um, so I guess like, you know, the, the Malleus, uh, Malf, uh, Malleus, uh, Maleficanum would be an interesting group to look at, uh, maybe to add as another wing to the Inquisitors. Maybe if they they have a an appropriate difference of opinion somewhere to the Inquisitors in Classic World of Darkness, it would make for an interesting kind of schism, representative of the type of schisms you've seen in Christianity throughout the ages. You know, when you have like the Council of Nicaea and so forth and so forth. Um, I had a look at the Night Stalkers PDF as well because obviously in there you've got different types of uh, of um, different types of way, ways of presenting vampires. So again, um, yeah, there, there might be a little bit of discussion in there that might be relevant towards true faith and depicting it in games. Nice. All right, Chig, what else have we got with the Inquisition? What else would you like to have with the Inquisition, Mike? Well, I don't know. I mean, I was just kind of leaving it open for you. Um, it sounded uh, like you were trying to make some comments about the Sons of Tellurian there before we uh, got off on our New World Darkest tangent. In the uh, the Hunters Hunted 20th edition, uh, it mentions the Sons of Tertullian have a, uh, a subsect, the Sect of St. James, uh, who believe that uh, suicide is a means of entering heaven. And in 2012... <laughs> ton of them just off themselves in a basement somewhere and uh their mortal remains continue to shamble around and uh the living living the living group are waiting for them to uh wake up basically and tell them all about heaven so i think that that is the uh the group you mentioned earlier who are off in the shadowlands uh fighting the good fight yeah they might be of course the uh you know, the, the canon story of the Classic World of Darkness has the sixth great maelstrom coming along. And uh, preceding that, a lot of wraiths get forced back into their, their bodies or even bodies of others and become, you know, these kind of risen beings. So that might be why that's kind of going on. <laughs> that's a great touch that uh, since I'm not a big wraith guy, I'm just getting into it, like you said. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get when I was first reading it through, so that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So they off themselves and then just end up back in their bodies. Kind of ironic. <laughs> uh, so, um, obviously, one of the things I was thinking of, um, what's important about true faith is also how um, you depict it as well, because true faith is maybe something that is more common amongst the lay, the laity, you know, the common folk in, um, in uh, if you're running Dark Ages, because, of course, people believe in these things and maybe miracles and uh, monsters are far more overt so you know true faith is possibly something that 
in the you know, vampires in in uh, the Dark Ages are going to come up against more frequently, because of course we've in the modern times we've become too uh, jaded and deluded with faith, and uh, we have technology and so forth, and the technocracy has you know shown that true faith isn't required. We just need to have laser cannons. Um, hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In the Dark Ages, of course, faith and fire are the two weapons of humanity. And representing the faith part, uh, you can do it in a lot of different ways. You know, if you go to, um, you know, proto-Russia, the Kievan, Kievan Rus states, uh, you're going to be looking at a lot more of these sort of pagan symbols, uh, in addition to more, you know, Christian overtones uh, with the people there. And then also, there's a lot of relics running around. So maybe instead of brandishing a cross, you might have the finger of a saint or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Or a... Um, or a uh... Uh, some sort of um, uh, container that has, uh, you know, the blood of of some saint, and of course you've got all the classic ones. You've got um, a piece of the true cross. Um, you've got the spear of destiny. Uh, you have um, the the, nails, the, the nails. Yeah. Um, and but if we're uh, going back to uh, if, we're, if we're going back to discussing true faith and how it it could be an actual blessing from a being on high, or it could just be the faith in one's beliefs, we have to mention mage. Yes. Which is all about one's beliefs. So where does one draw the line between true faith and, hey, you have the true faith merit, you get the true faith abilities, and becoming an awakened mage? Yes. And what this, is, this is actually touched on in the uh, the Celestial Chorus revised uh, tradition book. It gets a couple oh, okay. of pages, and they give a, they give a couple of uh, of answers of that. And one of them is, uh, nope, nobody has true faith. If you think you do, you're wrong. You are just an awakened mage, and this is how this is how your paradigm works. And the opposite of that is, uh, nope, um, there is a. All the all the celestial choristers—they aren't actually mages at all. They just a, a whole bunch of people who have true faith. Could you not say? Because obviously, true faith—you're um, going to have true faith come from different powers. So obviously, it'd be interesting to know uh, what uh, parallels there are to the Society of Leopold and, and such. You know, Christian uh, hunters. Uh, what the equivalent is, say. Uh, from a Islamic kind of uh, approach, or say from Hindu and everything, I think that would be really interesting. It's like what other types of religious vampire hunters would there be? Um, and what that makes me think about is obviously, well, surely then even followers of of uh, tr of what you would consider traditions. So you know, be it something that's that's the uh, like more pagan, verbena like, or or something like. Um, something that relates to the Thanatos. So could you say that true faith in some respects is the is the mortal is the mortal equivalent uh the the sorry the tradition mage equivalent of how they can empower mortals in the same way that you know the technocracy hands out this experimental you know phased cannon hmm. to an enlightened yep. mortal non-awakened scientist and of course they have a faith in the science, you know, because obviously they're being told this works. Trust me, this has. We've got all the uh, R and D on this. This works, and of course it does work because it's it's enlightened science. But the scientists, because they are just a normal mortal, they're not awakened. 
they don't understand the science, yet they have faith that there is an element of faith that that the, that the research behind this phased canon has had peer review. So is that what is true faith? The tradition, ver, the traditionalist version of handing out laser cannons. Yes, yes, and no. I think it would uh, it would depend on the uh, the group of traditionalists. Um, true faith may well be the celestial choruses number one group of uh, sorcerers, but I don't really see a lot of true faith people in the virtual adepts. Oh, well, of course not. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say in the virtual adepts you have more of the equivalent of what you know. They have a more kind of uh, weird science element to an extreme edge science element that the Tenoxy do. But I can see you can do the parallels of true faith between, like, say, the Thanatos uh, with the Dream Speakers, uh, with with any of those other groups, because obviously it's it's more about what your belief is is in. And of course, you could still do the order of the order of Hermes. You just could have more of a belief in essentially, uh, you know, uh, hermeticism, hermetic magic. Uh, and and really that kind of occultism, and uh, kind of almost wanting to believe that Harry Potter wizard, you know, wand waving actually works. Um, so, yeah. Well, I in mean, the old of the darkness, they have um, sorcerers, and uh, yes, that's yeah. what the the enlightened scientists, enlightened yes. mortals are in the technocracy. They're just uh, sorcerers by a different name with a different yes. paradigm. So I guess you could. I guess this. So since. Since uh, true faith is kind of just another form of sorcery, use in, in the old world of darkness rules, mm-hmm. yeah, it it could indeed be looked at that way. Yeah, that was the argument I was going to make, Chig, is that uh, you could actually, you know, looking at uh, different noumena, they're essentially um, kind of loopholes in reality that these certain individuals kind of learn that they can um, use. So it may just be that true faith is this kind of loophole that exists. Um, which actually kind of brings up some kind of funky questions when you look at uh, Demon of the Fallen. But suffice it to say, maybe it's a loophole for only certain religions, but you could actually have some funky things showing up where, you know, maybe true faith in your game just doesn't exist for, I don't know, Zoroastrianism or something like that. Or maybe it's super powerful for Wiccans. Zoroastrians. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. That could, uh, you know kind of give you some extra mileage when you're looking at uh, true faith and the uh, sorcerers of the classic world of darkness. I'm not sure that as a uh, a gamer and as a storyteller, I would want to limit it to just the right people. That no. just seems a little, little icky to me. Oh, you yes. Want to do well, I mean, I'm not game. condoning such a thing. I'm just saying that you could have these kinds of questions come up if you wanted to portray it in such a way. Why are there no gypsies with true faith? Is that what you're saying, Mike? That's what <laughs> oh, geez. All right, we're getting in trouble here. We're getting in trouble. All right, is that it for uh, true faith in the Inquisition? I think that'll do it, yeah. All right, perfect. So with that, let's move on over to the secret frequency. It was a cold winter's night when the devil came to Devonshire. Most place the date at February 8th, 1855, but even this has an air of mystery to it. Abnormally heavy snow blanketed the country, and townsfolk were locked indoors for days. When they finally emerged, they found single-file hoof-like footprints 
uh, in the snow. Not just in one village, but throughout the entire countryside. The first person to notice these hoof prints was, of course, Grandmother Jill, then 76 years old, uh, as she inspected her garden in Woolsery. The prints were four inches long and three across, with an average distance of one foot apart. Most disturbing was the depth of the prints. Each print had melted the snow it impacted, leaving a horseshoe shape down to the ground below. Intrigued, the old woman called for the mayor, who then called for the scientists from the Center for Fortean Zoology. The scientists were absolutely stumped. While the hoof prints looked like they could have come from a large donkey, uh, the print indicated something that was actually bipedal, and there was no way a donkey could be heavy enough to clear the snow to the ground surface below. As they followed the hoof prints from Grandmother Jill's house, they found the markings moved in perfectly straight lines until they suddenly zigged and zagged. The prints would encounter a house and continue onto the roof, sometimes seemingly climbing up the house's gutter. Other times, hoofs climbed over uh, 14-foot walls. All told, the zoologists estimated that 40 to 100 miles of these marks had appeared seemingly overnight, unbroken by any physical obstacle. The local townsfolk were dismayed, blaming the local church for letting the devil into the community. The church itself had recently changed its prayer book and style of mass, so you never know. Others looked for more mundane explanations. A few suggested that an escaped kangaroo had gotten loose. Others thought that it might be an experimental weather balloon that had broken loose in a storm. Others blamed pranksters. But wouldn't someone have noticed the bright lanterns wandering through the snowy night? One historian did discover a similar phenomenon in Devonshire nearly six centuries before. It was a warm summer's night when a violent lightning storm suddenly appeared, electricity raining down and scorching the land, leaving hoof-like prints in the soft earth. Whatever the case may be, the devil's footprints did not appear because of any ordinary phenomenon. In the world of darkness, uh, the hoofprints could actually provide a lot of very evocative inspiration. In a hunter or inquisition game, perhaps the devil's hoofprints really are from the scalding footfalls of a demon wandering the countryside. However, locals themselves have begun to make copycat footprints as a sort of a hoax. How will this red herring throw off the hunters from their prey? In Vampire the Masquerade, there's of course the Celtic Leanden bloodline, which has a strong connection to spirits in the woodlands. Uh, but what happens when their summoned spirits loses control and begins to terrorize the countryside with no regard for walls or doors? And what about Spring-Heeled Jack, the Victorian, almost pulp character? It's a devil-like creature that hops around with springed heels, mostly traveling around London and other cities. Uh, Eddie Webb himself made a free supplement regarding this character, so maybe you could use that as some inspiration, or have something similar intertwined with the Devil's Footprints. And of course, if you have an electrical storm, you've got to talk about Promethean the Created. Sure, the Devil's Footprints could be a wasteland effect, uh, where the earth itself becomes too hot and dry to till. But what if the Devil really is wandering throughout Victorian England, and a throng of the Created chase him as part of their pilgrimage? So there we go, guys. What do you think of the Devil's Footprints? I guess you could again say 
that the devil's footprints maybe is a physical manifestation of a uh, dragon line or ley line, which is important to say to the Ordo Dracul or to uh, mages. Um, mages both in Old Order Darkness and New Order Darkness. Um, Potentially, it could also be a physical manifestation of a trod through the hedge, and these these uh, these uh, devil's footprints appear on uh, particular uh, nights when uh, there is a verge, and so essentially, you know, some creature, uh, some uh, tree fay. Maybe it's uh, maybe even if it occurs, you know, when there is snow, maybe it is the pathway being taken by, uh, by, um, the wild hunt. Um, yeah, that's off the top of my head. Um, it's, I think you covered a lot of good ones there, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Another idea is looking at, uh, maybe the God Machine or something else that's inhabiting the Earth itself. Uh, for example, the God Machine could have infrastructure. This could be just, like, some vents that are coming up. Um, mm. because there's something beneath the county of Devon. Um, a cog has rolled of, along the land. <laughs> that could be it as well. That would explain why everything's so uh, geometric uh, with what's going on. Uh, but additionally, you could also look at uh, perhaps the antediluvian uh, Enoya, which is the uh, founder of the Gangrel clan mm. in Vampire the Masquerade. Um, perhaps this is uh, because canonically she's actually embraced the earth and earth melded with it and has become pretty much part of it. Uh, maybe this is just a vein or something that's uh, touching the surface in this area. Um, and if the, uh, let's say, the, the Tal Mahara, the, the true black hand, um, can actually pierce the earth and get to that vein, they can collect some of this antediluvian's blood for whatever mm. purposes they have. Interesting. Of course, you could use it as a, in the sense that it's a, uh, an omen of some form, uh, you know, and um, you know, if you, this is one of uh, many events that are in the lead up to some significant event of demonic nature, maybe. Um, so that would be applicable really to any game. I feel. Um, yeah, I think. But really, my idea is, yeah, I think you covered a lot of great stuff that I can't really think of much more. I mean, Springhill Jack is a great character as well. I mean, quite easily uh, could be a changeling for either game or some sort of antagonist. He has kind of that kind of a folklorish feel to him. Um, I'm just trying to think of something else from New World of Darkness, maybe. No, there isn't much more, I don't think. Yeah, well, we can check with uh, Chig over here, see what he has to yeah. say. Yeah. Hit me with it. Or don't. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> you said it was in February, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that is um, Imbolc, which is oh, a... Course, uh, yes which is a changeling festival in the old world of darkness and it is in fact when the changelings uh, relight the bale fires and more importantly to this story br uh, parade the bale fires around to old and new uh, freeholds so clearly since it was such a dark and stormy night the only people who could make it out there were the super athletic satyr the uh, ah. cloven hoofed changelings Holy crap, that works perfectly. Clearly, all it is is a group of satyrs who are bringing <laughs> the uh, 
uh, Balefire from Freehold to Freehold. That works perfectly. Wow. All right. I think uh, case closed. Yes, I know. It's Changeling. Of course it's perfect. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, anything else, guys? Or are we done here? I think we're done. I'm tapped out. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the secret frequency. So let's go move on over to the new World of Darkness. World of Darkness 2.0. Guild Halls of the Deathless, which has been out for two months, maybe more, I think. Thereabouts, yep. Yeah. And uh, it, it pretty much does exactly what it says. It's a uh, an in-depth and, and uh, dense discussion of each of the guilds, uh, the playable guilds in, um, in Mummy the Curse for New World of Darkness. And it also includes uh, some new powers and relics and uh, extra rules um, for use for that game. And also includes the first part of an uh, ongoing story which will appear, and the rest of the parts will appear in later supplements. Um, but I think we should really focus more on the guilds themselves because um, the information, of course, we have in the Mummy of the Curse book is you know you, you get like two or three pages per guild, and you know they they uh, try and uh, compactly and efficiently describe what it would be like to play as one of these guilds and what their uh, beliefs are, what drives them and what they fear and uh, why they do what they do. And so it's a good point as well, because I think, Mike, when we first uh, we talked about uh, Mummy the Curse uh, originally, um, we didn't really spend too much talking about each of the guilds. We were more into kind of like the, the Mummy the Curse in general, yeah, we definitely did not cover the splats at all. Yeah, so this is a. I think this is a good point to maybe what will possibly even be a continuing thing because it'll be good as well in future to return and look at some of the splats for the games as they get updated. In particular, Vampire, mm-hmm. the Requiem, what with the new book. But back to Mummy of the Curse. So the first uh, guild to talk about is the Marquette. They are the masters of servants, and they are they make use of talismans as their symbols of office and power. So they are kind of like the middle managers. They were the ones that were cracking the whip on the slaves when uh, the nameless empire and and the city of Irem were constructed. So they have very much a belief of of unity, of 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 having the entire city and empire working together. Um, so they originally started out as, you know, basically as middle managers uh, serving the other guilds and, of course, the, the Shaniatu, the, the, uh, the, the masters, these ne- master necromancers of the Nameless Empire. But, of course, one of the main things now in the, in the more modern ages is that the, the Marquette are also looking uh, to prepare the world for the restoration of Irem, for the return of the Shaniatu. And so this means that not only are they middle managers, they also, uh, and helping the other guilds, they have a higher, higher goal of, of maybe controlling the world as a whole. Um, they also make uh, a big deal of, of keeping an eye on the trade of antiquities and return them to the Duat. So, so they, um, they get really into the, the, 
the guts of society and and controlling it, which really keeps which which shows that they are above humans, but they're not above their their ultimate masters who reside in the duet. Now, of course, as a guild, you would think as middle managers, uh, that's all they do, but they've evolved over time. And so one of these evolutions is the fact that they also see themselves as part of their role of not just only helping the other guilds. So obviously, you know, they, you have a, one of, one of the, um, the, another arisen that you, that the, this Marquette helps out is say uh, one of the scribes. And they're more interested in like noting down history and events in their city and, and ensuring that they, they have a, a record of what's occurred or what should have occurred. They don't have time to deal with the, the stuff where they need their cult to go off and reclaim a text because they're not really into getting their hands dirty. But they've got a market who helps them with those sort of things. So the market get their hands dirty for the other guilds. Though this serves a, a dual role, it also means that they can, they can be as close as possible to the other guilds so they can watch them to root out, so they may be better able to root out heretics. So, of course, the ultimate question of the markup is who watches the watchman? So, they, so ultimately, they, 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 they want all the other guilds to feel like they are servants when actually they are the watchers. Because of the, the, their desire to help the other guilds, there, um, there are there are some added extras. So um, normally in Mummy the Curse, uh, uh, one of the Arisen can be awakened from their, from their state uh, at the end of, in their current cycle um, through a few ways. Obviously the Sothic uh, cycle, the wheel turns and they're all, you know, Arisen are awoken. Or, of course, their cult, the Mummy's cult, can, uh, can have them also woken up. Or, obviously, the Mummy's tomb is... Uh, is ransacked and he wakes up kind of pissed off. The other thing, though, is that the Marquette can kind of have their soul sort of tied to another mummy from another from another guild, and in times of need, that Marquette can then be woken up by that mummy. So there's this element of being a sort of a servant there. Um, so obviously, they're very much into control. Uh, they kind of like the way that Europe and America is going. They they love the NSA. They love uh, GCHQ. They love all this level of control because they hate secrets. They hate secrets a lot. They want to know what's going on, and they yeah. like clarity. So they are they they look like servants, but really they're a secret police. Um, Mike, any other things you wanted to ask about them or Chig? Nope. Nope. I mean, <laughs> there's really interesting. Yeah, they're, they're really big on rooting out heresy, and they there's a list of things they look out for: casual suggestions that the judges are fallible, disrespect to the Shaniatu, repeated questions about the necessity of vessel recovery, <laughs> the use of vessels to stave off uh, to stave off dissent. So, you know, they're they're really you know big on you know taking out people that you know undergo transgressions and of course yeah. considering some of the considering some of the deeper issues with the other guilds there this means immediately that a uh, a, a troop of players a pyramid of of of, of arisen players if you've got a mark in the group 
you know, you've already got this element of paranoia going on. Yeah, it's interesting to think about with them being this kind of secret police when the Arisen themselves don't really have a stable society or culture because 90% of them are asleep at any given time, uh, possibly more. So how can they really have this whole, you know, intricate look at, at how um, different heresies are developing and, and that sort of thing when a lot of the time, how are they going to be able to communicate it? Uh, is it going to really fall to different cults uh, themselves to kind of pass along the information? And uh, itself, how are these different uh, arisen going to uh, really know what's going on? Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting to bring up the, cult, the you know, how they view their cults because, um, you know, that's exactly what they're... If, they're, if, that, if those Markepa, you know, obviously a certain number of them are going to be awake or asleep at any one moment. So there's a, a, there's a level of trust in their cult being watchmen for them and slowly gathering evidence and not taking action until there's enough either to, to, be, to cause concern and wake up their master or wait, wait for the right soffit cycle or some other event. Um, and of course that works for the cult quite well because a cult built up around this element of you're going to be servants to others, but you're going to keep a bloody good eye on them. Works for them because you know you can feed these mortals' desires for power, and by having them empowered by you know through an air of you know espionage is quite useful because obviously mortals have very temporal, short-lived uh, needs that can be easily uh, easily catered for while they're just gathering evidence for the long-term goals of this Marquette. Yeah, that's interesting. So the question to who watches the Watcher is the cult itself. And maybe that's really the weakest link for uh, many of the mm. Marquette if someone from a different guild or maybe one of the uh, lifeless needs to go after them. Definitely. The other thing as well with um, which we get into with uh, some of the other guilds is that there are some pretty frightening levels of uh, sanctions and uh, punishments that can be leveled at the Arisen. Uh, and so, of course, you know, the, the Markep are, are at least one part of, of, of that chain of, of leveling, um, you know, some sort of punishment on her, you know, heretics or just, or just Arisen that are derelict of their duty. So that's pretty much, I would say it's pretty much that. that you know, they're big on information, they're big on transparency. Uh, and so they, I guess they kind of see kind of a, the cycle of ages in the sense that in this current age, it's almost like what, ha, what has fallen will rise again in the sense that they went from a period where everyone was unified under the Shaniatu back to now an era where people could be unified under a global, uh, a global kind of governance, uh, government because of the, the amount of technology able to enable that. So mm. in that respect, they kind of they have a very kind of panopticon kind of feel, mm. uh, which you see panopticon being actually a uh, a, uh, a a pylon of one of the ministries for the uh, Seers of the Throne. So there's there's some interesting parallels to be made. 
Uh, we'll move on to the next one. So we have the Mesa Nebu, who are the alchemists. Um, so obviously they don't feel that Iram uh, is gone. They just feel that it's it's partway through a cycle of transmutation. So everything in the world is in a state of flux and is a lesser form of the true empire that Iram represents. So they obviously um, they understand they they trade in this idea of of deadwin, which is like a, a which basically means worth. So they think sekem flows in the worth of things, and and something's worth gets transmuted. So you know slaves, uh, mining quarries, they dig up rocks which get broken down and transmuted, and then you you're able to smelt out the metals, and the metals are used to make something greater. And these greater things, you know these crowns, amulets, are then used as signs of power. And this all represents just how dead one transmutates from hard labor into power and then translates into getting more slaves and using them to get more stuff. So there's this constant cycle of, of kind of equal exchange, uh, to use a kind of a full metal alchemist kind of sense of things and so they kind of believe in this idea of the subtle bazaar which they are the uh, the guardians of the subtle bazaar being this place where your will your 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 drive is what enables you to transform the dead one of of an object or one thing into another form of course as alchemists, uh, they also have some interesting ideas. So one of the things is that they feel that there's there's a kind of a, a belief that they can make sacrifices of people to their to the judges in the Jewat. But there's no actual sign this actually does anything for them. So there's kind of a oh, uh, there's kind of a foul kind of internal. Um, I would say uh, rituals. Uh, born out of superstition. Uh, the other thing is they're quite happy to steal relics of others. So it's a very bad thing and it's a, it's a, it's a faux pas and you know, you'll get sanctioned for it for going into another mummy's tomb and taking their stuff. Obviously that mummy might wake up in, empowered with monumental amounts of sekum and smite you. But, you know, they they believe that you know, it's that you privilege is, is not is not something that's worth anything. Uh, skill they they believe more in a in a um, not plutocracy in a meritocracy. So if you're if you've got these relics and you're really not doing with them what you should be doing with them, they'll take them. So theft is fine if the victim is is not really doing anything with it or is, is in fact doing something heretical um, so obviously their their ranks in their society represents different levels of control so they're all about uh, they like understanding the the supply chain of of a company of a of a country of a society and so their their ranks represent this so at the lowest rank you're doing the bog standard understanding where raw materials come from and in some cases, the raw materials actually means, you know, information. And then you pass it up the chain, and this represents the transmutation of information or of of sekem of deadwen, and you know, this transformation into something that can then be used and put into action. And 
of course, you know, the, their ranks also mean that they play a particular role in creating cults. So those of lower ranks are more involved in in uh, recruiting people into their cults. So their cults are very much based around uh, materialism and and economics. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much them in a nutshell. Uh, let me just flick through uh, the PDF. Anything else you guys want to say? I really like these guys. Their their whole prosperity gospel cult thing, I can totally see that working out really well in the modern world. Yeah, they love the modern world. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously there's there's even more stuff, more more materials they've never known about. So uh, Deadwen has taken even more forms that they've never considered. Deadwen is is now takes form in the internet itself and it's a, it's a very uh, complicated thing, and of course, you know, they they believe they have the will to you know cons- to change it and and uh, and here's another thing: they also believe um, that sekem then and thus an expression of of worth also can can not only just uh, manifest in objects and things, but also in people. So they're very much into like identifying these people, which of course leads into the whole sacrificing people to the judges uh, kind of yeah. ideas. So they're like, "Oh, you're a, you're a wonderful you're a wonderful artist. I really love your art." And you know, their art turns out to be actual you know uh, items that Sekem has coalesced into. But they think, "I won't just take your artwork and return it to the Duat. I'm gonna return you to the Duat." Um, only the best things to the gods. Only the best things to the gods. Um, obviously, this means their tombs are quite gaudy with the amount of stuff they've collected. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much them in a nutshell. You know, theft is property is their idea, spend is necessary. Uh, they have various degrees and mentorship, as I said. And of course, you know they have certain views on the other guilds. So the Marquette, they love the Marquette. You know, they they go out and get stuff for them, and they do the and then they can do the transmutating. Uh, the Shesha Hebsu, uh, the scribes, they just think are a bit of a joke in some respects. You know, let them write down stuff. They don't really do anything. They feel like they're just writing stuff down. They don't actually understand the magic that in action. Uh, the Sumenet, who are the, uh, the the funerary priests, are the ones that they have more of a uh, philo- philosophical disagreement with. So the Mess and Nebu are quite happy. They're, they're all about change happens, whereas the the uh, the Sumenet are more like we are eternal. And of course, those two ideologies rub up against each other a lot. Of course, they see the the Masonic Guild, the Tef Arbhai, as uh, more of an offshoot of themselves. Um, so, yeah, there's again, there's some interesting stuff there, and they're quite interested in um, in obviously the Shuangsen, who are like the the uh, um, oh, what's their term? The unliving, isn't it? I think they're called or the yeah, life. Sorry, yep. yeah. So they're interested in kind of the 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 magic that. Uh, that's created them, and of course, uh, you know there, there's also uh, an interesting thing to be seen between um, between the alchemists and the deceived, the uh, lost guild. 
Um, because while the, the alchemists can make things, the Lost Guild were the ones who had the powers over naming things. So, uh, you know, is a thing not a thing unless it has a name? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, we can move along then to, of course, the next group, which is the scribes, the uh, the Shesh Hebsu. So obviously they, they, they keep a written record of the history of Iram and of the world, and also keep a written record of the law of Iram. Now, the important thing that scribes, you think the law, well, that's all about morality. Well, the idea of, of morality and truth and, you know, the Egyptian term, the goddess Mart, that's actually complete counter to what the scribes are all about. The law of Iram is not about fairness. The law of Iram is about how you should conduct yourself before the judges and the shaniatu. So the law is not moral. It's about knowing your fucking place, <laughs> which really makes them quite interesting because not only are they the scriveners, the, the people that write down where, where Iram's relics are and where, where the cults are and what power the cults control and where where in the world all the, the arisen are and what things have happened. They're also the judges. They're the ones that will will look at uh, a case of heresy, or look at a case between between conflicting uh, arisen, and they're the arbiters. They're the ones that lay down the law. They'll look at precedents, and they'll they'll basically they keep they keep the word. Um, and that's important. So to them. They, to them, words are are the the thing that empowers their magic. But it is the will, which is what the lost guild had control over. The will is the thing that allows you to name things and create new words and thus new magic. So, the the scribes, while it's not open to the other to the other guilds, are interested in slowly recovering the secrets of the lost guild. Which, of course, means there's the danger that the scribes are going to fall foul of heresy. Um, the other interesting things is the, the scribes are not beyond writing down history as it should have been. So they see that uh, what they're recording, it also not only is a record of what should have happened, it's what should have happened so that you learn from it to direct the future. And so they're not just about writing. This relates then, I guess, about the fact that they don't see the law as truth. They're they're more about interpreting interpreting the law and history for the benefit of the nameless empire and the judges. Uh, which means this all kind of manifests mis- uh, metaphysically in the idea of the scroll of ages as being this uh, this this sort of god almost that they're constantly adding to that they're always recording things upon and that this scroll of ages is sort of a, uh, uh, a path of destiny that they're helping to direct based upon what the judges direct them to write. Um, so again, the scroll of ages is, is absolute and it's not moral. So yeah, that's them in a nutshell. Uh, how do you feel about those guys? Well, not specifically about the uh, Sesha Hebsu, but uh, looking at the different 
uh, guilds that we have here. It's kind of interesting that with this source book, how it's written in, they all kind of have these, you know, points of conflict that are worked in and how all the other guilds may, you know, have problems with them. For example, the Motcap with uh, them trying to root out secrets and all that. Uh, and the Mesonebu with their um, stealing of relics. And the uh, Sumanet as well have thrown uh, proclivities for heresy and the like. So I really just, I think that was a very good decision from design, um, really to bring this conflict in between the different Arisen, as well as the conflicts with other, you know, exterior antagonists and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, the interesting thing as well with the, the with the scribes is that they are possibly the one guild that has the most amount of knowledge collectively about apotheosis. So apotheosis is essentially how one of the Arisen can really break from the cycle of the descent. And, of course, within uh, the more general society of the Arisen, uh, the idea of apotheosis is considered uh, a heretical act um, which goes side by side with um, the the heresies committed by the Lost Guild. So, obviously, when the book The Deceived turns up, that will give us far more insight into how close all of the guilds are close to the heresies of the deceived and who exactly the, the deceived are acting for and what their goals are. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is quite interesting. And as you say, Mike, yeah, there's a lot of baked-in kind of conflict with these groups, uh, even though essentially, because all the guilds are servants of the Shaniatu and the judges, and they are trying to uh, channel Irem's all of the second back in back to the uh, to the to the Shaniatu, so that Iram can rise again, um, and uh, it's it's interesting because they're all they're, they should all serve together, but they they can so easily be at each other's throats, and you know that's cool because of course both uh, philosophically and in their actions. They, there's a lot of conflict, and of course, the other conflict will then come from as individual arisen, uh, you know, reclaim their memories and realize they really want to be working for the judges yeah. and for the yeah. Shaniatu. Um, well, of course so, they do; otherwise, it's heresy. Well, yeah, it's heresy, but th- <laughs> but this gets into the thing of like why I think I've, uh, I said to Mike, there's a comparison between. Uh, between the Arisen and the Seers of the Throne in Mage of the Awakening, because they're doing things... In the case of the Arisen, they're doing it out of... Well, really, I guess in, in a level of ignorance on both sides, whether it's forced ignorance or not. They're doing all these things where they're trying to control the world out of the, out of the faith in their heart that they will get rewarded for it. And there's really no guarantee they will get rewarded for, for for their work, and maybe that that is the thing that you know their their memories as they they uh, recover them their memories of Iram will you know, kind of reveal is that you know what they're doing is just recreating a, a society which comparatively to the modern age is horrific. Um, yeah. Uh, Organization-wise, well, yeah. <laughs> um, if, you know, if you know you're going to be rewarded, then you're not really doing it out of the goodness of your heart. You're doing it because 
you're going to get a reward. Yes. But they have the belief that when a rim is reformed, they'll get a pat on the head and sent to the the nice part of the the. Uh, but, the but their reality. faith is obviously. But the faith, of course, their faith for the arisen, their faith, of course, is is reinforced by the fact that they don't have memories of what the world was that they left back during those ages. So, you know, they may remember things quite horrific from that time. They may well remember things that are even more horrific from their time in the Duat. You know, they, they may well suddenly remember their time between cycles where they were before the gods of the Duat. They were in uh, the kingdom of the Shaniatu, and they may remember, remember that actually the people they work for are despicable eldritch beings that shouldn't actually even return to Earth. So, um, and that's a good that's a good element of the game. There's also that within there is uh, as your character goes through cycles and or they die and uh, your character dies and is reborn because that ha- that actually happens quite rapidly in the game. You don't actually have to worry about dying too much in in a game of Mummy. Um, you you obviously pass through the duet and judgment before. Um, before the gods and before uh, Anpu, who is uh, the alternative name for Azara's Cyrus Anpu, is um, why can't I think of the jackal jackal headed god's name? Anubis. Uh, Anubis. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. yeah. So obviously they 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 will remember things in those cycles. Oh, okay. So obviously scribes have various ranks within their group which all really to do with again what role they're performing whether they're gathering information whether they're they're the ones that are collecting it determining what should be written down what shouldn't be and how they form tribunals to judge other arisen um yeah they're quite quite interesting and so obviously there is some uh, there's obviously some rules, as I say, in the extra chapter, which covers performing these tribunals. They consider the Marquette to be rather base because the Marquette just inscribe words on their on their uh, talismans. They don't really understand what they're doing. Uh, you know, they consider the Messenebu, the alchemist, to be rather vulgar and arrogant and uh, not really understanding what they're doing. Uh, yeah, there's again. There's a lot of inbuilt. Um, there's a lot of inbuilt antagonism between them, and of course, they're very much interested in the deceived and reclaiming that lost knowledge. As for the lifeless, you know, they they just see them the the Shuangsen as a as a type of creature that really should just should just be eliminated altogether, and of course, they don't look. Uh, they don't look favorably on mages stealing ancient texts. So, uh, yeah, they'll be wanting those grimoires back promptly. Um, which then brings us on to the Sioux Menet, who I find kind of interesting. So the Sioux Menet, um, as, as you may have noticed, each of these guild groups is related to a certain type of item, a certain type of relic, the, the Markepa talismans. The alchemists uh, are related... They're, Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head which, what item it is they use. Uh, it's in the core book. Um, but, yeah, they have particular things they're attached to, so, like, bit uh, effigies, 
or um, in the case of the uh, Tef Arbi, or um, in Sue Menet's case, they have what are known as um, Utra, which are the which is basically kind of like mummified creatures and body parts, and that's their kind of symbols of power. And of course, these guys have absolute faith in the uh, Shaniatu and what the Arisen are doing. They are they are the ones that ensure everyone else keeps to the faith. So they're also big on rooting out heretics, but while they're not a secret police, they're the ones that remind everyone else that they should be, you know, doing their their uh, their duties to their gods and their rulers. The problem is with the, the Sumena is they're they're racked by the fact that the modern world is evolving so quickly and religion is has fallen out of favor favor. So their cults are more like mystery cults and are kind of at the fringes of of uh, society so they're very much in in taking hold of these uh you know neo pagans or or some such and uh and attaching and bring it into their own cults and manipulating it in that way um but of course because they're very much backwards looking in their f- in how they uh in how they act they find the modern world rather difficult to deal with and this is possibly where they may well crumble and so they're not very adaptable both in their doctrines and their ideas furthermore uh, they fear that they may have forgotten too much about their own gods so they always fall back on dogma they are they and they just fear they've they've forgot that the arisen in total have forgotten too much about the shaniatu that they may well not be doing as they should be doing. Um, of course, they also, because they're very much interested in uh, how Sekem kind of transmutes and evolves in creatures. So obviously they see Sekem as something that has evolved over time uh, from the smallest organism to, you know, apes and then man. Uh, they they find the modern world kind of uh, extremely difficult to take in because there is so much information about creatures that they never knew existed before on continents they've never visited so the polar bear the kangaroo the galapagos turtle you know they they want to know what these all mean within the within the greater cosmos and their and uh, and in the the metaphysics of their beliefs so they have a real real tough time with accommodating everything the modern world has revealed. Um, so yeah, they're, they're basically the guys that are saying, keep the faith, but but internally they're going, we may have lost the faith. Um, and of course, one of the things is uh, interesting is that the, the story uh, within this book, and will be going on, ongoing, relates to... Um, relates to particular roles within their uh, within their guild so they have um the highest member of their guild is known as the first prophet and recently the first prophet has gone missing or has even has even been completely destroyed and completely destroying one of the arisen is bloody hard and so that's happened and that is a catalyst for the uh the store for the uh the the uh, kind of the story, the the sass that's in this book, and we'll be carrying on. Um, what else can we say about them? Um, 
yeah, I think that's that sums them up quite a lot. Obviously, they've got roles within them which, you know, they've got certain groups of priests that, that basically serve as their, their warrior priests that defend their temples. Uh, so also they create temples as well. Um, hmm. And then there's a heretical group who are quite interesting. Uh, so obviously the, they're known as the uh, Deshar Iritep. Thank God they put uh, phonetic <laughs> uh, <laughs> descriptions in here. But anyway, so these groups are about, you know, obviously falling away from the worship of the judges, hoarding second for personal youth, harming the guild as a whole. They, the other no- name they get given are called the Red Magicians. But here's the fun thing. Some mem- higher-up members of the Sumenet will actually push members of their guild to become heretics in order to learn more secret knowledge and magics so there's a there's a there's a slippery slope there and they also have internal problems you've got traditionalists you've got contemporaries and you've got those who want to find new ways forward so they, there's there's a lot of their internal problem is all about faith and how you deal with it um and they've got different ways of building cults because obviously they're really big into building mystery cults so in that respect in that respect i find them kind of similar to uh the guardians of the veil in mage the awakening um or the lancaire sanctum also Hmm. um uh, thoughts on that group obviously they're really good necromancers and they deal with ghosts because you know they like dead stuff (laughs) yeah definitely uh, I don't know. I have one little gripe about these guys. So since, of course, was working on a bunch of stuff with uh, True Faith and all that, uh, Christianity was on top of my mind. And, you know, it seems to me that, uh, you know, priests being called shepherds or being represented in that way is a more modern uh, Christian idea. So when you look at this, you know, ancient prehistory city of Irem, should they really be considered shepherds? I mean, when you look at a lot of older religions and, and uh and faiths, a lot of the older pagan ones from you know Mesopotamia and that area, priests were a lot more like butchers actually, um, in that you'd bring sacrifices to the temple and they would cut them up, take some for the uh, the gods or whatever, and, and and like that. So I just think it's kind of interesting thinking about that and why they're really called shepherds. It could be because it's a archaic term for them because their original role. Uh, before the uh, the rite of return, was that they, and before really the Shaniatu were at the height of their powers, that they uh, basically were more like priests who dealt with ancestor worship. Um, and But then that, of course, changed with the, the Shaniatu. So really their role was changed as well. So rather than, it, rather than preparing people for death, and for that journey and comforting people to accept death, they are now more involved in in shepherding the arisen to keep the faith. So that's really what they're doing as shepherds. They don't really give a, they don't really give a damn about mortals, and that's a really important thing. The judges and the shaniatu have no moral reason. No reason at all to give a damn about mortals or the mortal world. They are just tools to transmutate Sekem and have it returned to them so that they can return. And in that respect, they are really scary and uh, 
you know, just completely... You know how I normally say, like, the Exarchs in, in Mage uh, are a horrible, horrible kind of group of of immense beings who have shackled humanity within the cage of reality to to basically... Uh, to so that the the exarchs can harvest uh, essence um, and and supernal power, and in the same respects, the god machine does exactly that same thing. It's just using people to to uh, harvest essence for itself. The gods of the Juat and the Shaniatu are bastards of the same color. They don't give a damn. And in Mummy the Curse, you get to work for him. Oh, yay! <laughs> yeah. I think the line that you had about uh, they've forgotten too much about their... or they fear that they've forgotten too much about their gods, that's one of the most powerful things that I've I've come across in any role-playing game. That's, that's incredible, especially when you're playing a priest, a worshipper, a devout worshipper. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, they've gone through... You know, it it thousands, ties back into... In, into the uh, the themes of faith and doubt that we were talking about a little while ago. I mean, like you said, it, it, they could have forgotten that uh, the guys that they're worshipping are complete and total assholes and don't care about them at all. Mm-hmm. But they keep doing it. Yeah, because exactly. They, because that's their job. And the interesting thing is, I think this brings up is, because uh, I was talking to one of the uh, writers who's working on The Deceived, and yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting overlap and I think interesting crossover that you could potentially have in a game which takes elements from Mummy and from Mage and uh, possibly even Geist because it's all to do you know, it's all to do with like you know what's being forgotten, recovering it, and learning the truth of things and and seeing beyond the veil and. Um, and also for Promethean, because Prometheans and uh, an interesting thing he said was that you know Prometheans and if you had a, 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 a one of the, one of the created and an arisen together talking to each other about their their state of being, it would be basically a long discussion of who's got it harder as created beings that are not humans and both want to basically return to being humans. You know, because they they're essentially very similar creatures. They are they are they have, you know, the arisen died, and Sekum empowers them back into life. The created are uh, stitched together from body parts, and through uh, Azoth uh, are, are brought to life, and Pyros are brought to life. So, so um, yeah, there's some really interesting discussions to have in there. I think maybe Dave Brookshaw is the guy to possibly ask those questions because we know um, we know Colin is uh, is not keen on on talking about Mummy and its crossover, which is cool because I think Mummy as a game sits really well on its own. And this really, you know, the New Order Darkness is islands you connect. It's not a house of cards built where one game line is built on the other. You know, Mummy exists on its own as a scary piece of shit as it is, if you start <laughs> adding in, you know, mages and a Moros mage going, you're dead, I deal with dead things, and I've got this guy here called a Sin Eater, and, you know, he died and came back, 
Then there's this guy who's a, who's a Promethean and calls himself an Osiron. How does that work with you? Those guys... So my ultimate view is, like, if you've got, like, one of these guys, the Sumenet, have a Sumenet arisen, a Moros Mage, a Sin Eater, a, a Siren Promethean, and oh, let's chuck in a, uh, uh, a Mech vam- Vampire from the Bloodline. I can't remember the name of the Bloodline, but it has the Bloodline uh, power that is able to consume ghosts. That appears in Book of the Dead. Have them all sitting on the banks of one of the rivers of death in the underworld. And let them have a discussion. That'll be a fun conversation. Um, and an interesting point that was brought up is that the underworld is completely devoid of Sekem. So the, the, the Arisen have no desire to go into the underworld because it would be a dereliction, it would be a distraction from their duties and would actually more than likely lead to a, an erosion of Sekem. Whoa, actually, that's a really interesting idea, because then, particularly for these uh, Sioux Manette, they need to grab you know, souls and spirits before they get sucked into the underworld, so they won't lose mm-hmm. any Sekum that's associated with them, which uh, just adds another little dimension to them. It also, the, the big question that's still out there, then, is where is the Duat? Is it a domain of the underworld, or is it somewhere else entirely? And I'm going to go more with it somewhere else entirely. So uh, while there are parallels with the underworld, it's more like an, uh, it's, a, it's a form of underworld with, with a p- very particular purpose. Anyway, that was a fun little chat there. Let's, <laughs> let's finish with the, uh, the, uh, the last section. Um, oh, obviously, there's the thing I've not gone into, but there's... Um, there is discussion with each of these guilds of uh, their their um, distribution across the world and what they're doing on each continent. And um, obviously, with if you think about when uh, the uh, when um, let me get this right, so when uh, Irum existed with relation to Aztecs and Mayans, so more than likely. You know, some Arisen did get across to the New World and South America, and those cultures were were a reflection of the Arisen creating a form of 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 Irum in that current time. Uh, so that le- leads to the idea that other mummies in the world are a a a, uh, a very failed version or reflection or an attempt to mimic the arisen and the right of return. So that's just an idea out there. Uh, lastly, we have, um, we have the uh, Tef Abi, who are, a, uh, who are basically, um, they were the, the masons. They were the ones that built Irem. Uh, you know, they created this grand metropolis. And they believe in the idea of Heka, which is... I'm trying to find where it says what Heka is. Um, so Heka is kind of an... Ex, is, a, is purpose, and uh, it, it flows around the world. And they're very much into the idea that they can control how it flows. So obviously they're into sacred geometry and how uh, buildings and cities and roads and rivers uh, channel it. And so that's how they eventually, obviously, channel 
they channel the um, the SACAM. And that's a very important point with them because they they obviously are quite forward forward looking because they uh, they don't believe in things that don't last. So if it didn't last, it wasn't good enough. If it's good enough, it will last. And that's that whole kind of circular kind of reasoning there. So obviously, you know, you've got to plan for something, but you've got to do something in order to plan for the future. So they're very much about always having a purpose and enacting it and following those plans through. Um, and so they create grand, you know, schemes across the ages, and they're they're careful to ensure that they can they they allow some modification of these plans uh, over a, a cycle of descents. So you know they see Sekem as built-in things, and of course, uh, um, they they see technology and the internet as a uh, modern forms for hacker to be channeled. Uh, their rank is often based on who has the best idea for the future, the best vision, and who is more capable of bringing that vision into being. And because of their plans, even when they have low memory, they have a feeling of high memory. So that basically means they have things to look back on that directs them on what they should do, even though they've forgotten what they were doing. So they're very patient in that sense. And they plan for change, they build temples, they, uh, they have opulent tombs and multiple tombs, they don't trust their cults too much. So they don't trust a cult that takes too much initiative. So while they're asleep, if their cult starts going off and, and doing things and changing plans and taking control, that mummy when he wakes up is most really going to create a slaughterhouse and, uh, and clear it out and get things back on track. Um, also, what else can we say about them? Obviously, they make effigies, and so they used to be. They used to be the ones that made effigies, so small symbols of power and of their uh, of their gods. Then they obviously grew in scale of the things they were making. So you know, tombs, temples, buildings, roads, cities, and in the modern age, then they're back into kind of making effigies again because. All of this immense power can be connected to you in a small item. So be that your mobile phone connecting to the internet or you know, all this information can be, can be coalesced into a small thing through 3D printing. So again, that's their idea of how Hecker can be channeled into things. Um, other interesting things here. Uh, so, as I said, you know, they're not keen on deviating from the plan too much. They're the ones that want to execute their plans. That's basically it. So, you can see, with respect to the other guilds, obviously they see the Markep as being quite useful in executing their plans and ensuring that while they're not around, they can trust their Marquette to who's possibly still awake to keep their guild, keep their cult in order. Um, alchemists, they basically see as the kind of types who will make things that they can make use of in larger constructs and in effigies. Of course, they're the, t they're the ones that mostly help the Sumena out with making temples. I guess the ones they kind of possibly have some issues with are kind of like the scribes who consider these things, these grand affairs, nothing compared to writing down 
history and the true words. Um, yeah, they're quite interested in that respect then. So what's their uh, conflict with other guilds? Is it just they don't like change? So if you start doing things differently, they get kind of pissed? Yeah, internally, their problem is where you get a, uh, a conflict of plans and when a plan must be changed. So quite clearly, you know, you wake up, things have happened in the however many years you've been asleep. And of course, um, you know, plans have to be amended and as a collective group you know it falls to whoever has the best plan um the problem there then is whether the plans they're following really reflect what they should be doing based upon their true memory of what's happened or what the 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 shaniatu want them to do so um again that's that there's that kind of conflict um I can see them having a very difficult relationship with the uh, the Sesh Hebsu, who write down things as they're supposed to have happened, not as they did happen. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if the, the Sesh Hebsu, that's a really difficult word, the Sesh Hebsu um, write down that, hey, you did a great job planning that city, and it should always be exactly the way you planned it. Great job. Then they'll be the best of friends. But on the other hand, if they say, oh, no, that was a, a really crappy cre- construction job that you guys did, we're going to have to redo that completely, then I can see there being a, a huge conflict between the Tef Abi who say, oh, no, 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 our plans are perfect, we planned it. <laughs> yeah, certainly if the Tef Abi trust them initially because they've just woken up and so they don't have a good enough memory to know that, but then as their memory comes back, they go, hold on, why are we doing this plan? This plan was kind of helped out by the you know the uh, the scribes and does that mean the scribes been lying to us that's like that'd be a massive kind of problem because they could be following a plan which they didn't plan mm-hmm. indeed mm-hmm. and if the scribes are lying maybe they'll go to the maquette to find out what's going on and the maquette might root out a heresy somewhere which means the sumanet are going to get involved see how it all works it's One pretty cool that way cycle. Yeah, and then then the one thing which uh, these guys, there isn't much description of in here is uh, it has a bit about their cults, obviously, and they're very much into you know corporations and uh, and again creating expansive groups. Um, their problem is more that they there isn't much detail on here on. Um, on their conflict with the other groups like the um, the Deceived or the Shuangsen. Um So it's difficult to say what their view is on that. I'm sure, you know, if you make... if you Again, it comes down to, like, you know, things have power if it has a name. So a, a city has no meaning unless it has a name that evokes what that city is. Um, and with the so yeah i think that that's kind of missing with them i i would say while this guild are quite, again quite interesting there's some bits here which are, i would consider maybe a bit missing in the book um but yeah i mean it's 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 a packed it's a very packed book and it's very dense with this information it does kind of repeat a lot of the main core book 
uh, again and trying to address the theme and mood of these guilds but it does I think the main thing is it really expands upon the uh, the the very internal conflicts within the guilds and the conflicts between those guilds. And as you said, Mike, you can suddenly see how you can build up this this conspiracies and tension between the arisen in a city or in a country. Because I don't know what the number of arisen should be, but it's certainly going to be less than vampires. It's mostly going to be on the same level as say. Prometheans and Sin Eaters like you're going to have maybe maybe only like 10 in in any major city you know and that limits you possibly only to uh, a good a good hundred or so per continent indeed but then when you count in the cults you got a lot more that's that's really where the uh, the numbers come from in you can curve. see some really good fun between uh, you know obviously <laughs> the mummies and their cults, vampires and their cults and whatever they have, uh, and uh, mages like the Ex- the Seers of the Throne and the Guardians of the Veil who have their own mystery cults. And it really means, you know, the New World of Darkness has got some really, really complicated uh, interactions uh, between these shadow societies. And these shadow societies operate on can operate on very local scales or very grand scales and that's really exciting yeah so that's pretty much it obviously um i'm going to if you want to talk about about any final ideas i'm just going to flick through um and just pick out some in, names of some interesting powers in uh that they added in the uh in this book as well um so there's some new affinities they've added in. Uh, I've not yet gone through because, as I say, this book is is uh, is very deep. There's utterances and uh, and new relics. Um, the diamond chisel of Tazaret, who binds the gaze of men, is some Marquette amulet, uh, which sounds very interesting. It is a diamond chisel. Interesting hmm. for for marking cartouches. Um, yeah, so I think I think for me personally, um, I think I'm beginning to get a feel for more of what I would run, and the very core themes of the game then is about rec- it, to me is obviously memory and how this relates to what you what the judges want you to do and what you feel you should be doing and what you remember about yourself. Heresy, I think, is the major theme of this is is a major element of running these. Uh, running games about the arisen and and what the magnitude of that is it could be you could be playing a game as simple as your group of mummy of arisen coming into conflict with another because you have conflicting plans whether it's about city planning or or philosophy or or the writing of history or it's the conflict because one group is watching on you because you know you, they've got a marquette that's watching you and seeing if you're going to do something wrong or you're all interacting and in amongst all this there is some ancient ghost of Irem that's woken up or the Shuangsen are out hunting you down or some mystery of the uh, lost guild so um, 
it has it has flavors of a kind of a, a game of say and a game of vampire the requiem where you're more playing like elders and because elders of course have a messed up recollection of events but then also it's got flavors of of mage and recovering ancient infam- uh, ancient knowledge and revealing the truth of things cool i like it yeah it's a great book it's just it's a hard read and i'm looking forward to reading blood and smoke because i think blood and smoke's going to be easier because of my familiarity with vampire the requiem oh yeah well all the uh, the egyptian words or Egyptian-ish yeah. words uh, in in Mummy are always kind of kind of slowing you down, trying to be like, who are these guys again? Oh, okay, the alchemists. Who are the the Shuangson, the Amkata? I think having read this book, those terms are now more deeper into my into my mind, and it's easy to talk about it. But still, it's it's hard going. Um, yeah, indeed, indeed. Especially when you talk about Ab and Bar and the the five pillars and stuff i don't even know those off by heart yet yeah <laughs> you'll get there i have faith in you oh yeah i have faith in you too Chick. i have faith oh. that you're going to do something classic with changing uh, the dreaming um <sighs> on that note about faith <laughs> on that note what are we going to do say in closing uh, forgotten lore we want to put out another issue of Forgotten Law, and the theme for Forgotten Law will be demons. So we would like to have game content or short stories or discussions of either Demon Fallen, demons in the classic world of darkness, demons in the new world of darkness, or a discussion on or ideas or story seeds for Demon the Descent. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm thinking about submitting is uh, some ideas for cyber-gnostic implants. The reason is uh, I was challenged to run a uh, World of Cyber Darkness kind of cyberpunk game uh, inspired by Demon the Descent, so uh, I'm going to be doing that pretty soon. I'm supposed to do it in November, but it kind of got cancelled, so uh, you probably expect that in January, and I think there'll be some kind of cool ideas, mostly based off of the uh, implants that are in uh, World of Darkness Mirrors, the Bleeding Edge little supplement, PDF supplement. So that'll be pretty cool. And then, of course, Chig, um, we've we've got something, some kind of challenge going on again. Uh, maybe a little Hunt of the Reckoning. Maybe a little Changeling the Dreaming. We'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to that. Oh, and... Um... Mike, you said you've been you you were you had a look at my notes for Cthulhu Tech, didn't you? So, uh, are we planning to go bring back Section Nine at some point? Maybe. Yeah, probably. Definitely biting off more than I can chew, but uh, let's see what happens. Maybe try and run it using um, whichever one, which was it? The 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 other rule system. Maybe do a do a hack. Uh, um, with uh, with fate, yeah, I mean fate's pretty easy to hack, so we could do that, or we can just else. suffer and use the existing rules some more, <laughs> and then sit there for about twenty percent of the game, just being like, "What do these rules actually say?" You mean I have to roll twice, no, three times, just to use a psychic power? Do we have to roll dice for the uh, damage, or is it just straight damage? <laughs> this is why I'm going to play in it next time rather than try and run it because it'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Good stuff. What else? So. And it also, um, it would be 
really, really nice to have feedback on all issues of Forgotten Law so we can find out what people want to hear. And so obviously, you know, because you know, people have submitted stuff, we've written stuff, it'd be nice just to, you know, to be told either we're doing the right thing or what we could improve. Um, because, uh, you know, having feedback is the most important thing as writers. Um, which leads us to how can they get in contact with us? Well, I guess the uh, best way, especially concerning this contest we have coming up, is uh, emailing us at darker days radio at gmail.com and uh, of course the contest is for a copy of a physical copy of blood and smoke the strix murder chronicle and uh all you gotta do is just send us an email just say like all right i think uh i think mike likes the followers a set don't actually do that please don't say followers <laughs> i think chris is a huge fan of the kybit bloodline and then uh maybe i don't Ooh. know say chig is a uh, cappadocian Oh no, Cassiod. Is that right? The um the Fey vampires? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess he probably is. Chig has some pretty cool ideas about Don't those guys. It's a little bit of an alternative. <laughs> we'll see yeah, what I've people got, come in with. I've gotta write down my Kiasid bloodline ideas. But now I have to write something to do with demons. So Yeah, I'm thinking of yeah, demons for uh in Geist. Because of course uh, demons can possess ghosts. That'll be interesting. So I'll have a look at Inferno again. Um, also, of course, we can be contacted via Facebook. Though, uh, what with recent stuff that they're changing on Facebook, you, you you have more fun if you find us on Google Plus because we have a community there that's quite active where you'll see our secret frequency postings. Uh, Chick, you post up uh, that thing in whatever's lurks in the bottom of Chicago, or was it Seattle? Seattle. In Seattle. Seattle. Uh, Seattle's the signature city for demon. Yes, it is. Hmm, funny how that works out. Yeah. I'm also actually quite familiar with that project from an engineering standpoint, so I think I got some insight into it. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, of course we have a Twitter, at Darker Days Radio, uh, where you'll have updates. We also have our blog, which is... Yeah, it's it's all the other game stuff we do, which is basically well, me writing up stuff for Iron Kingdoms and toy toy soldiers. You'll see pictures there. There'll be more. There'll be more um, World of Darkness stuff there once I'm back to running it. But uh, yeah, you two should write some stuff. Just throw it up there. Um, that'll be fun. Or if people have got some stuff they think that want that should be seen, we can put it up on the blog. What Sam recently did her blog entry looking at, because she's doing a series on like uh, female monsters, because of course, you know, if there's anything scarier in horror, it's women. Um, and she covered, um, she looked at the depiction of Claudia in Interview with the Vampire, uh, which of course is uh, an interesting character because obviously child vampires are scary uh, because you have this ancient being. Uh, in the body of a small, uh, you know, child, and it doesn't look like it could do anything to you, but it can. Um, mm. So I'm not too sure what she's going to be following up on that one. I'm sure we're going to find some winter-themed horror horror film to watch, and we'll do. A, she'll write a review on some something like that, something nice and Christmassy with death. Um, yeah. Uh, 
It would also be good to maybe get Sam and say Michelle Flam on at some point to so it's not quite a guys guys boys 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 kind of uh, darker days. So we could maybe talk about you know get get uh, to make it a bit more diverse in opinions on something for gaming. So maybe we could look at say. Um, that might tie in with something like doing a, a a retrospective on Vampire the Requiem, what with the new book, and obviously Sam's played enough Vampire, so um, you know opinions on how you would play these things. Uh, yeah, that might be kind of cool. Like how to play how to play Vampire, not just talking about it, but like some more mm. opinions on that. Anyway, I think yeah, is that it? anything else? Uh, nope, that's it. Just, nope, guys, remember the contest. Just send yes, us in something. Mary had a little lamb. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's Christmas, and we're giving away a free book, a, a physical copy, for Christ's sake. Is it going to be the premium copy we'll be able to give away? Deluxe copy? Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll have, have to, to wait see. until... Let's see what options they have. Yeah, because we'll have to wait until the POD is available before we can you know, give it away to the winner. But the moment it's there, it'll be there. Um Totally. It's a shame we can't we can't we couldn't get it signed by one of the writers as well. That would have been that would have been icing on the cake, but yeah. Well, you never know. Never I really don't know how we could do that, but I don't know how we could do that either. <laughs> Alright, cool. Well, I think that's it for this episode of Darker Days Radio. Um yeah, have a good night. See ya.